we're going to jump into uh, sermon now. So if you've got a Bible or device, I invite you to turn or swipe to Psalm 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Our study in the book of Psalms thus far has provided us some much needed words of encouragement uh, and, and just much needed words in terms of our current situation uh, that we find ourselves in as a church. So uh, we're getting really helpful reminders as to who God is and what he has done throughout history. We've seen ways in which he is faithful, even at times when he seems far away. We've been told of the fact that God is full of glory and how we need to stop ascribing glory to the things that he has created and give that glory to the creator. We've heard stories that tell of our weakness, how we need help, and how God is the one who can save us, the only one who can save us. And, and this is all great, all these realities, these truths, we need to know these, we need to hear these. But at the end of the day, it means very little if it doesn't change our hearts. We can intellectually say God is powerful, but then if we live in such a way that we're seeking to be in control and hold power, that it means very little. So, so if we do that, then God is merely a prop for us. He may make us feel better about ourselves, but he's not a savior. And so the point of all that, that we're doing that we're, as we're talking about these Psalms is that we would be moved to worship God but we can't short circuit the process here and just think, oh, that means I just need to sing some songs to God. Not at all. But what we're doing here is trying to mine deep into our hearts to change our affections, to stop living for ourselves, to see God as he reveals himself to us, that he is like no other, that he is good through and through, that he is kind, but not in a patronizing way, that he is powerful with no hidden agenda, which is something that we don't see oftentimes now. He is powerful. There's no hidden agenda for him. So we need to hear these truths, but, but we also need these truths to change us. So we have to give ourselves over completely to them. So let's hear what we can from Psalm 11 this morning of God's character and his nature, and, uh, and we'll ask him to change us in the midst of this. Let's read Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds the upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. God, would you be near us in these moments? Would you show us how you are a refuge for us in the midst of tough circumstances? 
Would you drive home the necessity and the beauty of your righteousness and what that means for us? Teach us who you are. Change us to become more like you. In your great name we pray. Amen. All right, so this psalm begins with a bold statement. David is saying, in the Lord, I take refuge. So whenever we hear refuge, it's pretty safe to assume that trouble is nearby. A refuge provides safety amidst trouble. So right from the get-go, we learn a bit of David's situation. But let's talk for a moment about this phrase. So thinking on this phrase, it occurred to me this week how easy it is for us to utter this phrase, in the Lord I take refuge, but maybe truly understand what that means. So as, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about my children. I want my children to know what it looks like for them to take refuge in the Lord. I, I don't want them to be unaware of what this means or what this looks like. So, so this has to get practical for us. It's, it's got to drill down to our everyday nitty gritty concerning how we live our lives, how we actually are taking refuge in God. Now, we get a little bit of a picture of this when we think of David's life. So David is the one who's writing this. He's the one who's saying this about himself. David knew that he could take refuge in God. And the way that he knew this was from personal experience. When David decided that he would fight the giant named Goliath. He was sneered at by his brothers, and he was told by the king, Saul, at that time that he couldn't fight because he was just a boy. But he would fight, and this is what David responded with to these men. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. The key here is David saying, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. God had done it before, and he believed that God would do it again. So like David, a Christian needs to learn to walk through life with Jesus, seeing how he delivers us out of trouble, how he is a refuge for us in the midst of our trouble. We need experience to see that Jesus is precious, more precious than silver or gold. He's more precious than money. We need to see how Jesus never leaves us unlike maybe our favorite blanket that we had when we were a kid and that wore out. 
Jesus never leaves us, unlike maybe our favorite toy or that doll that broke. He never leaves us like the TV that stopped working. We need to see others face death filled with peace and unflinchingly committed to Jesus because they've seen how he was willing to commit his life to them and for them. We need to find Jesus provides us a type of rest that we will not find anywhere else in this world. In the face of fear, we know Jesus' love and it drives out fear or it provides us the sturdiness, the courage to keep moving forward when fear is staring at us in the face. So my point in all this, there needs to be a track record in order for us to take refuge in God, we need to see and know that he is a worthy safe house, that he protects, that he saves. And the only way for this to happen is for us to give ourselves over to him, to give him the opportunity. But, but even the starting point is for us to see how many other people tell us of how God has been a refuge for them in the midst of trouble. And the reason this is all so vital for us is because we will need a refuge. We will. We will encounter hardship. It's a guarantee in this life. You have faced or are facing or will face circumstances in life that will strip you bare, that will knock the breath out of you, and that will leave you disillusioned. So in the midst of those circumstances, where do we turn? David is saying, in the Lord I take refuge. Now many of us might think, and many of us might do, in the midst of those circumstances, we might turn to our friends. We might think our friends will be there for us, or our family will be there for us. We find David turning to his friends, hearing from his friends in this psalm. He has well-intentioned friends that he believes are giving him advice that is lacking. In the face of danger, they tell David to run to the hills. So essentially what they're telling him is when the going gets tough, the tough get smart and run away from their problems. They, th these friends are seeing the dangers surrounding David's life. They see that David's enemies are hunting him. And so they believe the best option for David is to spare his life by running away. So, so the idea here is of someone running away to create a circumstance that would make them feel safe, that would make them feel comfortable. So more specifically, the way that we can boil this down for ourselves is the, it's the idea that those who are trusting in Jesus will be faced with situations that will make them want to trust in something other than Jesus. When trusting in Jesus, we'll be faced with something that will cause us to want to trust in something or someone else. This reminds me of the story of Job. Job is an individual in the Old Testament. And in the story of Job, Satan comes to God looking for one of God's followers to torment. 
So God allows upright Job to be tested. So Job, God looked at Job and he, he looks at him and he says, ah, he's done a great job trusting me. Satan, you can, you can have a whack at him. So Satan believes that the only reason that Job trusts God is because God has been kind to him. God has provided him riches. He's provided him safety and he's provided him many possessions. So Satan believes that if he tests and torments Job, that Job's going to turn his back on God, that his faith in God will wilt. So Job is going to face horrific circumstances, death of family members, loss of all kinds, loss of many possessions that he had. And in the midst of all of these horrific circumstances, Job gets counsel. Just like David's getting counsel from his friends, Job get, gets counsel from his wife. And his wife tells Job, curse God and die. Look at all of this wrong that you're enduring. This is all from God. You should just curse him, turn your back on him, and then die. And I think this is a similar refrain to what we hear nowadays in our own culture. Trust in yourself. There is no God. So trust in yourself. Follow your heart. Do what you want, what makes you happy. Fulfill your dreams. You deserve it. Run to the mountains and build the life that you've always desired. And this is not good counsel. D David is not going to receive this counsel. Verse 3 goes on to say that if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? So the friends are telling David, everything's falling apart. And when it's talking about foundations being destroyed here, it's talking about the foundation of society, the core fabric of their country. They're looking out and they're seeing things are being decimated. So they're saying, well, look, it, it's all falling apart anyway. So just run away from it. Spare yourself. Get what you can. So when we think about our own context today, as we look around ourselves into our country, the American experiment of democracy, personal freedom, seems to be disintegrating before our eyes. It's fracturing in every way. When we look at our lives or the low, at the lives of those around us, we see the troubles of this world compounding. So what will we do? What will we do in the face of trouble? Should we run? Should we seek shelter? Safety can so easily become an idol for us. We live in a culture that values comfort. We will naturally, without thinking, seek to create havens of safety in so many realms. Fences around our yards, 
money so that we can retire comfortably, schooling for our children. It is just natural for us to seek to try and create circumstances that are safe and comfortable for us. Now, I'm not advocating for recklessness in any way, but I do think that we need to really wrestle with the value we place on safety and how our pursuit of safety informs our decisions and how we live our lives day in and day out. In the face of danger, should we seek to grab control and try to create an environment that seems safer to us? Is now, in the face of all we're looking at in this world, is it our time to pursue our dreams and look out for ourselves? Should, should we check out and try to move away from all this as much as possible? get some help in the following verses as we look at David and how he responds to the trouble that he's facing. Verse 4 says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. So he looks out and he sees trouble. And his answer to his friends is to talk about who God is and where he sits. So no matter the chaos, no matter the disappointment, no matter the heartache and the destruction that we see all around us, what we hear from David here is that God is still leading. God is still in control. The reality of what we're facing today in America didn't pop up on God's calendar as a surprise. He's not racing to a meeting that he forgot about. God still sits on his throne. He still rules. He's still in control and in charge. And like David, we need to remind ourselves of this reality. David goes on then in verse five. Oh, sorry. I, I meant to mention this uh, at the end of verse four, uh, where it says his eyes see. I, I think this is just a helpful personalization here, right? David is saying that God's eyes see what's going on. It, it's not as though he's just out there unconcerned, that there's this specific mention of him seeing what's going on in our reality. All right, verse five then. It says, the Lord tests the righteous. The Lord tests the righteous. This is going to challenge us when we think about this dynamic and, and what God does. So, so when we think about tests, we oftentimes think of tests in a negative light. But what we learn even from here is that they're not a bad, tests are not a bad thing. The tests we face in this life are not intended to discourage us. They're not intended to destroy us. Tests are intended to be a diagnostic for us. A test is a tool that allows us to see what we're trusting in and the sufficiency of that thing. In our day of trouble, we need to be able to see 
the value, the sufficiency of the things that we are trusting in. Ultimately, we need to be able to see things about God because ultimately that's where our hope and our trust should be. So let's look at a few things that, that we need to learn and see about God from Psalm 11. First of all, it says in verse 7, the Lord is righteous. So God is righteous. Now, in the midst of hardship, many people will find themselves wondering what they have done wrong in God's eyes. What sin have they committed that has made God mad at them? How have I been unrighteous to deserve this? And the thinking then is that God is angry and that he is punishing us for our sin. Now I'm going to take us back a number of months and we're in the book of Hebrews because we talked about this very thing. God disciplines those he loves, but discipline is restorative, okay? Punishment is punitive. It will do damage, but discipline is restorative. It seeks to work for the good, the restoration of the person being disciplined. So hardship highlights how things are not right, specifically how we are not right, how we are not righteous. God is righteous. We are not righteous. In Luke 5.32, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So this fact that we are not righteous is actually really good news. Jesus didn't come for the righteous, for the people who think that they have it all together, who don't need help. God came for the unrighteous. That's who he has come to save. So God is righteous. We are not righteous. And we do not become righteous by stopping sinning. Get that? We do not become righteous by stopping sinning. To think this way, to think that we increase God's righteousness in our lives by stopping sinning is just another way in which we try to save ourselves. It is not possible for us to run to the mountains and remove ourselves from sin. We can't do that. Sin is in here. Sin is not out there. Sin is in here. So we become righteous not by stopping sinning. We become righteous by trusting in the righteous one, God himself. And righteous living then is how we walk in what God has designed for our good and for our flourishing. It's not making us righteous, righteous living. It's not making us righteous. It's displaying God's righteousness, the work that he has done in us to other people. So I, I don't think it's any accident in Psalm 11 that David is talking about him finding refuge in God, and then he's going on to talk about righteousness at length, okay? Same goes for us. 
God is our refuge of righteousness. We don't find righteousness in us. We, we are not a refuge of righteousness. God is our refuge and he is where we go for righteousness. All right, so first of all, God is righteous. Secondly, God will judge the unrighteous. The sin that seeks to destroy us will be destroyed. The evil that seeks to kill us will be killed. Though sin may laugh in derision, and evil may at times seem unchecked in this world, it will not endure. It will not endure. Unlike our faith, as we are called to express faith in Jesus with endurance. The one who sits on the throne over all hates wickedness and he will bring about its ultimate destruction at the appointed time. So God is righteous and God will judge the unrighteous. Third, he loves righteous deeds. He loves righteous deeds. Not so that we save ourselves, but because it tells the story about the one we're trusting in. What God loves is to see his people trusting him in the midst of threats, but we, we can also say and should also say in the midst of pleasure, in the midst of comfort. But the point here isn't so God's followers look superior to others. It's so that others might see his goodness, that others might be drawn to him. Righteous living isn't so that we look like a, a goody two-shoes. It's for our joy, but also because it allows others to encounter the love of Jesus, the sturdiness of the gospel, and the beauty of his ways. So God calls us out of unrighteousness and into righteousness so that others might see and know him for who he is. This ties in with our core value of mission. It's not just so that we can do some good acts. No, the point is so that others will see that God's ways are better than our own. Fourth, the upright shall behold his face. The book of Revelation describes the throne of Jesus and his appearance in ways that may confuse us. But what's intended is that Jesus is unlike any other. He is unlike any other, better in every way. He is full of glory. But what is glorious to the upright is terrifying to the wicked. But there's this reality that the upright shall behold his face, and there's this call that we should long for that. We should long for something better. I remember uh, when Casey and I were going through the birth process of our four children. So I, I know this is controversial, but we, we never found out the gender of our children. Uh, for us, that was something that we, we loved, the excitement and the anticipation of waiting for that moment. And then to be able to see their face, to find out who our child was, to know their gender, but, but to see their face. And in a much greater way, 
we are called to long to see Jesus, to behold his face, to draw near to him, knowing that he is going to rid us of the troubles of this world, that he is going to put right all that is wrong in this world, that in that moment we will be truly free. We will see that which we have longed to see for years. As the foundations of this world seemingly crumble all around us, Jesus is what we need. Jesus is what we should yearn for because he is all that we need. He is all that we should want because he is the one who ultimately will satisfy us in ways no one else and nothing else can. There's nothing that we can run to in the hills to try and create a scenario that will provide us what we want, that will make us righteous in any way. So two quick points of gospel application for us this morning. First of all, Jesus chose to be unsafe for you. Jesus chose to be unsafe for us. So he was in heaven, sitting on his throne. He left the comforts of that to face death threats, ongoing death threats from the day he was born all throughout his life until the day that he was brutally murdered. So as we think about our lives and the fact that we follow Jesus, the one who faced danger throughout his life, we also can expect that we will face danger as well. And, and that we will have to make choices throughout our lives that will make us look foolish. It's part of the dynamic of following Jesus. Jesus also says, blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. So we shouldn't think because people don't like us at, at times that we're doing something wrong. No, that's, that's part of, not, not intentionally offending people, but that's part of the dynamic of following Jesus. Jesus is a stumbling block. He is foolishness to people. In the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, the, the Chronicles of Narnia series, Aslan is, is the lion who is a picture of Jesus. And, and in that story, there's this conversation that happens, and, and one of the characters asks, is Aslan safe? And the answer given to whether Aslan is safe is, of course, he isn't safe, but he's good. He is good. We will face things in this life that are not safe. But the goodness of God does not change. He became, uh, he, he ran into unsafe circumstances so that we could be safe. And, and this takes us into our second gospel application point. He provides spiritual safety for us. Spiritual safety is primary. To be made right, righteous by Jesus' sacrifice. 
that's primary. Though our bodies may waste away, though our bodies may die, we are being renewed. There is nothing safe in this world. And as much as you might try and create scenarios where you feel safe, there's nothing safe in this world. Nothing, nothing at all. There's no sure thing. And so my encouragement for us this morning is that we would live this way, that Jesus is the only safe place that we can go, that we would know the gospel, but also that we would believe the gospel. We would allow it, we would allow it to change us in the deepest parts of who we are.